Welcome to the New City Church Podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Joel Littlefield is beginning our new year with a new sermon series in the book of Matthew. And this week, he is preaching from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, and the message is called Christ and King Among Sinners. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Lord, save souls, revive your church, be glorified, Lord. Thank you for your word today. Thank you for this gospel of Matthew. And I pray, Lord, whatever number of weeks we are in this book, God, that it would transform us. Change us, Lord. Exalt your name in this church for the sake of your kingdom, Lord, that the gospel would be advanced, that the kingdom and the king of this kingdom, his name would be advanced in our hearts and in this world, Lord. So we give you this time intentionally, Lord, we turn to you, we look to your word now, out of our worship to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Exciting to start a new book on the new year. I'm so, so grateful, guys, to be doing this. I hope you are as well. Um, I'm sure that you've read Matthew before if you're a follower of Christ and you've probably read it. I know several people that have been reading it the last few months anyway. Um, I just started another reading plan today for this next year. And where does it begin? Part of it begins in Matthew. So we're going to be saturated in Matthew, okay, in the gospel of Matthew this year. And it does fit in with our theme, as John had mentioned. And we're going to talk more about this on the 15th for Vision Sunday. But this really does fit with our theme of Christ above all. There's really no better place to go to be saturated in the life of Christ than to the Gospels of Jesus Christ. So this is going to be, hopefully, a year that all of us are intentionally turning and looking to him and changed by his life and changed by his example. So it's going to take some intentionality on all of our parts. So I just want to encourage you guys to be intentional with how you come into this room each Sunday, how we worship, how we gather, and give our attention to God's word. Amen? So be, be intentional about it yourself. Today is kind of an introduction, and then we are going to cover this genealogy. The title of the message is Christ and King Among Sinners. Christ and King Among Sinners. But as far as an introduction goes, which is right to do with any book that we start, not knowing what part of this background or how much each of you may know, I want to make sure all of us are comfortable coming into this book and aware of just a few things about it, so it'll help us as we move forward. So who was Matthew? At the beginning of our Bibles, most of you will have a subheading that says the gospel according to Matthew, and the Bible seems to make a pretty confident statement that this is Matthew, and most, and it's almost unanimous among scholars and church church historians that this man, Matthew, the disciple of Jesus Christ, did in fact write this book. All right. So whether you are, if you're a deep studier and you get into some of those waters, you will find that some people disagree. And that's how it always is. Like, no, Matthew didn't write this. Just, just try to stay out of those waters, okay? Right? Like the majority, 99% of scholarly work says Matthew wrote this. So who is Matthew? So, just a few things. Matthew was a tax collector. We know this from not only his gospels, his gospel account, but from Mark, Luke, we know John. We know that this, this man, Matthew, in the first century was called to follow Jesus Christ, but he was called as a tax collector. Now, that means something. 
Today, we don't like them either. They're called the IRS. But in that time, it was a lot different. To be a tax collector in a Roman-occupied city, which that was, was to be sided up with the enemy. If you were a Jew and you worked as a tax collector, that means you were hired by the Roman people to work for them and collect taxes from your people, which they always gouged you, and they were always taking too much, and it was such a weight and such a burden on the Jewish people. But this was Matthew. He was a tax collector. He would have been an outcast because of it. His family would have rejected him. He would have not been welcome at home for regular family dinners. Why? Because they hated what the Roman citizens were doing, what the Roman government was doing to their region. This would have been Matthew. But in Matthew 9, if you flip over, we're going to just do a couple places from the later parts of this book just to get the background. In Matthew 9, verse 9 is where we see the call of Matthew to follow Christ. So it's important that we see he was a tax collector, an outcast. This is sort of where he is, the reality of his life, and eventually he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. Matthew 9, 9 says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. That's what we get. And we're going to, later in the, in the sermon, we're going to cover a little bit later in that text to get a little bit more understanding. But this is all we need to know for now. He was at the tax booth. Jesus said, follow me. And he did follow him. He got up. He got up from his tax booth. He was sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. We get this idea of a no hesitation immediacy to follow Christ. This is Matthew. Now, historians view Matthew as a methodical and very orderly writer, and we get that from this. And so this starts to make sense that God prepared Matthew for what he was going to do in writing this account of Jesus with his life as a tax collector. To be a tax collector, Matthew probably knew three languages. He was very well versed in, in mathematics. He was not a dumb person, right? People say, oh, the disciples, they were all fishermen. Not Matthew. Matthew was not the fisherman. He was the tax collector. And he was called out of that, that place of rejection by his own family, called to follow Christ. And this was the type of person that was required for the position that he held as a Roman tax collector. He had to be that way. He had to be studious, and he had to be methodical. But he immediately follows Jesus. So just let's just get our minds around that for a moment. What it is to be in that sort of a situation. Matthew, is he's doing his job. He's at his tax booth. He's got people lined up, and he's, he is doing what he's been trained to do. And out of nowhere, Jesus passes by with his disciples, and he just says, follow me. And he's willing to leave his job, his occupation, he's willing to leave all of it to follow Christ. Now, this, the application for that is not to go quit your job to follow Jesus, right? We have examples in the disciples which are really good for us to see, the example of, of immediately following, the example of being willing to lay it all down. Jesus doesn't call everybody to quit their jobs, but he does call everybody to deny themselves, to pick up their cross and follow him, and, and Matthew does this. A little bit more background, important distinctions between Matthew, Luke, and John, because if you're aware, there's four gospel accounts in total at the beginning of the New Testament. 
So you have Malachi, and then you have this 400-year period of, of relative silence where it does not seem as though God is speaking, and then Matthew writes this account. Jesus comes on the scene in the first century, but you have four writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but there's some distinctions that are going to be helpful as we move through this. And so here's a few distinctions. There's a Jewishness about this, about this particular document, and this is important so some things that help us to see that. You'll notice that he, uh, Matthew doesn't take the time to explain Jewish customs like Mark does. So as we go through this, Matthew will say certain things about Jewish customs like the washing of hands. and this, He doesn't go into any detail. He just assumes that his audience is going to understand Jewish customs. That's one thing that's unique. He also begins the book with a genealogy. That wonderful, riveting thing that we just read was the way he chose very uniquely to begin his account of Jesus. The other gospel writers don't begin with a list of names, but Matthew did. That's very Jewish. He starts with Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, which tells us that his audience primarily is going to be Jewish people. That, are gonna, that to them, that's saying something. To begin with Abraham would have been saying something immense to his audience. Thirdly, he hits on matters that would be uniquely interesting to Jews, like Sabbath, Talks about Sabbath quite a bit. The temple, these things are, are, very, are fairly unique to Matthew's writing. As a Jew himself, he is clearly interested in relaying how Jesus, Jesus fulfills Jewish prophecy. So the, the number of times that we see this phrase, here it is, quote, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. That quote comes up all through the, the book of Matthew. So that tells us that Matthew is saying something specifically to his Jewish audience saying that Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the Jewish Messiah. He is the one that through the writings of the prophets has been promised for centuries. This is Jesus. He is the Messiah. And he fulfills this prophecy. Fifthly, Matthew seems uniquely interested in the gospel's application to Gentiles as well. It's interesting how it begins, and we'll get into some of the unique parts of that genealogy that includes Gentile people, but how does it end? Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go into the world and make disciples of who? All the nations. Matthew has a unique audience to the Jews, but he's telling the Jews, you know what's always been? God has always had a desire to save the nations. From the nations, from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Gentiles and Jews. And that flavor is all through this account. That's part of God's sovereign plan. So Matthew is the only one, some specific things, he's the only one to record the Magi coming to see Jesus. That's unique, right? So that part of the Christmas story, he includes these Gentile people coming from a, a distant land, and he makes that a centerpiece of the Christmas story. So that would be saying something to a Jewish audience. Why, why would Matthew do that? He's telling them that Christ is in the midst of people, in the midst of nations and sinners of all kinds. And that's Matthew's account. The phrase Galilee of the Gentiles is used often, and we see stories told about the healing of the centurion slave, the centurion, the Roman centurion, remember? So he's put at center stage for a moment. And then the daughter of a Canaanite woman, both Gentile characters, some pretty big, prominent stories within Matthew's account. So those are just some things that help us to see that it is a very Jewish audience. Now, we shouldn't tune out because of that, right? just because most of us in this room are probably Gentile. Maybe there's a, a Jewish person in this room or of Jewish descent. Why should we not tune this out? Well, Jesus Christ is Jewish. 
and he is the Messiah of the world. Right? He came for us. He came for Jews, Gentiles, people of all nations, tribes, and tongues. So some additional themes that we're going to see in Matthew's account are the kingdom of heaven. Okay? This phrase, and, and if you're taking notes, write this down. And as you read through, and as we're going through this series over the next five years, <laughs> um, no, not that long, as you're, just take note, just think of how often, how often the kingdom of heaven is uniquely mentioned by Matthew as he's writing about this. 32 times, more than any other gospel writer, he uses the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. That's substantial. We also see the longest and most detailed record of the Sermon on the Mount in the gospel of Matthew. That's going to take us a good chunk of time. And I'm, I'm looking forward to, hopefully you are too, to going through the Sermon on the Mount and just diving into all that Jesus did there, all that he preached. The greatest sermon ever, ever preached in the history of the world. It's a sermon preached by Jesus Christ. And how awesome that we have that on record. And Matthew gives us an incredible detail, the longest account of the sermon that he preached, that he preached on that mount. There's many parables. We, we've already come through the Gospel of John. You remember, if you guys have been part of this church for a while, we went through John. John doesn't include any parables. Matthew does. Matthew includes an incredible amount of parables, stories to help us to understand. Uh, there are allegories to help us see truths that are hidden to the unsaved, but made aware to those who are in Christ. Those are in, intentional veils, a story to where somebody will hear it and go, that's just a cool story, where a believer will hear it and say, that's Christ, that's the kingdom, that's spiritual, that's Jesus. And those are uniquely part of Matthew's writing. Because of the way the Spirit inspired Matthew to write, this is a masterpiece. This is a masterpiece piece writing. This is uh, an incredible record, ultimately, on the birth, life, teaching, crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Matthew does an incredible job. And because of this, we're able to read this and anchor our faith, a, a, a rooted anchor in Christ into a thousand or thousands of years of God's plan unfolding toward this very moment. Matthew does it in such a way, beginning of this genealogy, that we can't just say, wow, Jesus is such an innovator. He wasn't an innovator. You guys realize that. Jesus didn't come and invent Christianity. It's a very common misconception. Where'd Christianity come from? Well, it started in the first century. You know it's actually rooted in thousands of years before Christ came? That's, that's substantial. Jesus wasn't an innovator. He was a fulfillment of what had been preached and prophesied for thousands of years before he came. That makes it all the, all the better. Not just a man that comes onto the scene and decides to invent a religion. If you've, maybe you thought that that was the case. And so Christianity has been just here. Here's Buddhism and, uh, and, and, and Hinduism, and here's Allah, and here's Jesus. And they're all just kind of choices of religion to choose from. There's none like Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that in the Gospel of Matthew. We will be challenged deeply by the words of Christ. I just want to prepare you every Sunday. And I, I'm, here we are on the first Sunday of the year. Commit, brothers and sisters. Commit to it. This is where you're going to be on Sundays. 
We're going to travel through the book of Matthew together. We're going to ask God to challenge us deeply with the words of Christ, the actions, the the teachings, the healings, the miracles of Jesus Christ, and that our hearts would be changed by it. You don't want to miss any of that. And and just imagine what God will do through an an entire year or two of of a whole congregation intentionally together saying, this is where we're camping for the next several months. And God, change us. God, use this in our lives. So we will be challenged. It's going to take work, both on the part of the preacher and those who are listening. We're going to be convicted. I believe this. There's going to be heavy conviction. As we walk through this, we're going to be convicted by truth as we find that oftentimes what Jesus says, it opposes our preconceived notions of what Christianity is and what it really means to be a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. We're going to be challenged. There are things that Jesus says at face value that should rock us, and it's intended to. Its design is to shake us, to divide between truth and false, light and dark, and it should be that way, and that's what's prayerfully will happen, and we will receive that with grace. Our specific purpose, as I said in the beginning of this sermon, which will likely take us through definitely 2023 and possibly into much of 2024, so get ready, is is to undergird that theme that has already been mentioned, which is Christ above all. So we want to help you guys with that theme, and all of us together, as we see the life of Jesus, we put him above all things. And so we're going to speak about this more on Vision Sunday, but it is... My prayer that the Spirit says to us through his servant, Matthew, which was a real man who penned these words 2,000 years ago, that it will result in a group of Christians who happen to call themselves New City Church, a a group of Christians who will encounter Jesus every week. We're going to forsake sin together, turn from sin, commit to him, Jesus Christ, as teacher and Lord of our lives, If that's ever been an issue, let's work that out. He's not just a good teacher, but he's Lord. That we would come ready to say that he is teacher and Lord. That we would savor him more as the Savior that he is and let everything else, because of that, fall to the bottom as Christ comes first. He's at the top. Christ above all. So pray. Whatever that looks like for you, pray for that. Christ above all things in my life. Christ above work. Christ above family. Christ above children. You want to know what happens when you put Christ above your family and your children? You become the kind of person, parent, husband, wife that God intends you to be. All of those other things become healthy as Christ becomes and most important to you. So that's our prayer. Christ above all. Now let's dive into chapter 1. That was the introduction. Chapter 1. There's something extremely unique about the way Matthew chooses to introduce Jesus to the world. Think about it this way. Jesus is being introduced here through Matthew to the world in, in a way. We already talked about this for a second, but the Apostle John began with the eternal Son and his, at his incarnation. We remember phrases like this from John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh. He didn't begin with his physical birth or his genealogy, but he goes all the way back to the beginning. He says, in the beginning of what? In the beginning of time was the Word, the Word, Jesus Christ, the 
the very epitome of what God wants to say to humanity existed at the beginning of the world when God spoke the world and human beings into existence. Jesus was there. What does that tell us? Jesus is creator. He is creator. That's where John wanted to begin. Luke begins with the forerunner of Jesus. So if you go to the book of Luke on your own time, you'll, you'll see that it begins with John the Baptist, this record of his forerunner. And he gives great details of the events surrounding the birth of Christ as a good historian would do, like Luke is. Mark skips past all of that, skips past the birth of Jesus. So if you want to see the Christmas story, don't go to Mark. He goes to Jesus, and he dives right into his baptism. That's where Mark picks up, at the baptism and the calling of Jesus Christ. And here's what's unique about Mark. So he shows us his healings. He shows us at the very beginning, Jesus in the verse first chapter of Mark heals a leper. He, he calls his first apostles. All of these things happen in the first chapter of Mark, and so he's a, he's a writer of action. And another word that we see in the, in the gospel of Mark often is the word immediately. Immediately he followed. Immediately he did this. And immediately the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. And we see that word all through the gospel of Mark. And then we have this meticulous Matthew beginning with this wonderful an exciting genealogy. So to most Americans, this would be just a list of names. And probably for many of you in this room, if you were honest, like, did you tune out? No, don't, don't raise your hand. But it's hard to listen to, right? As Americans, we have, no, we, have, we have no connection to things like that. I mean, I don't really sit around thinking about my genealogy. Do you? I mean, maybe you've gotten into the family trees and all this stuff, and that's, that's, you, that's cool, but it's also kind of boring if you don't have a cool genealogy. You're like, oh, well, you're trying to like, I want to find an ancestor that came over on the Mayflower that was like president or something. And that's where, but just a list of names, it means nothing to us. So to us, it would just be a list of names, but to an Eastern culture like ancient Israel, this was gold. This would have been like, they would have tuned in. He's listing names and it's about Jesus. Let's find out who he came from. Is he really the Messiah? Is he who he said he is? Is he the promised one? And Matthew knew this about his Jewish readers, and so he began there. And so if the argument is that Jesus Christ is Israel's promised Messiah, then there is no better way to begin than with a genealogy, by connecting Jesus to the two most important men in Jewish history. Did you notice that at the beginning? The two most important men in Jewish history, David and Abraham. And it begins right there. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So here we have in the verse, first verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So the Greek word for this would read the recording of the beginning. The word genealogy is just simply from that word Genesis. It's the beginnings of something. The book of the beginnings. And the word genealogy, like I said, taken from Genesis. And Jesus is the bringer of new life for his creation. He is the genesis of the new kingdom. And this is the record of it. And that's what the book simply means. It's the record of the beginnings of Christ's kingdom. When he comes to earth to bring and establish his kingdom on earth. And so this is what's happening. He is the bringer of new life for his creation. So in combining David and Abraham, Matthew is drawing attention to two strands in Jesus' 
Hebrew ancestry and implying that he fulfilled all that would be expected in a Messiah with such connections. So, now what do we learn? Like, what can we learn? What is here for us that a a list of names could possibly do to create a a Christ-likeness in us? One thing that would be immediately significant and would stand out to someone reading this in the first century is the presence of four women's names. Did you guys catch them as you were reading? The four names are this. Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, and Bathsheba. Now, it wasn't so uncommon that it would never happen. This isn't so startling that, that Matthew is doing something completely unique that never, never was a woman's name mentioned. But it was unique enough to catch attention, and the names that he chose are extremely significant. And so when you finally dive into what these women were and who they were, it begins to make more sense. So look at verse 3. It says, And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. So that's where Tamar is introduced. Now, write these down if you're taking notes, and go back and read these later. But take note of Genesis 38. That is the story in Genesis 38. When we see Tamar, Tamar sells herself as a prostitute to her father-in-law. Okay, so first of all, just wrap your mind around that. Sells herself as a prostitute to her own father-in-law, Judah. Remember Judah? Judah is the one through whom the scepter will never leave. This is the line of Jesus Christ. Tamar sells herself as a prostitute to her father-in-law, and as a result, Perez and Zerah are conceived. So right off the bat, the first woman's name in here is a a prostitute who's selling herself to her father-in-law. Not a good start. But there she is in the midst of this genealogy. And then we have Rahab. Rahab is found in the book of Joshua, chapter 2, and in chapter 6. So take note of those. Go back later and read those. Who is Rahab? Rahab is a Gentile prostitute. When Joshua sent two spies, you probably remember the story, he sent two spies in to spy out the land, including the area of Jericho. The spies ended up in Rahab's house where she hid them, protecting them from the king who sought their lives. And so she hides them in her place, and they are protected there. Later, in chapter 6 of Joshua, when the walls of Jericho are about to fall, God looks back on that. And he says, spare Rahab and her family from the destruction of Jericho. Because of her obedience and her one act to hide the spies of Israel. They get to be freed from the destruction of those walls. So incredibly, and according to even Josephus the historian, Rahab continued in the land of Israel and married into a kingly line of David a man named Salmon. And that's who's in our record here. Rahab marries Salmon. So with just reading through this, you may not see that, but this is what happened. This is after the walls of Jericho come down, and in the midst of that era, that time for Rahab, she ends up being enveloped into the life of Israel and marrying someone who just so happens to be in the line of Jesus Christ. Salmon and Rahab, who do they beget? Maybe you didn't know this, and you probably heard the name Boaz before, if you're familiar with Scripture. That's their son. Rahab and Salmon beget Boaz. And Boaz is, of course, in the book of Ruth, he is the upright Israelite. He is a man of great righteousness. He loves 
the God of Israel. And he meets and marries Ruth. And who's Ruth? Ruth is a Moabite, another Gentile woman. Not just a woman, but a Gentile. And a Moabite was somebody who was a sworn enemy of Israel. There were curses upon the Moabites that said, until the 10th generation, do not let there be, there should not be any intermarrying. Don't let this happen. This nation was. And here's Ruth. She's a Moabite woman. And Boaz redeems that. We know from the book of Ruth that it's the kinsman redeemer. That's who Boaz is. The Canaanite and the Moabites were enemies, both of them, Israel, and yet God grafts in Rahab, who is a Canaanite, and Ruth, who is a Moabite. Both of them now are in the line of Jesus Christ. Ruth and Boaz, who do they beget? Obed, according to the scriptures. They beget Obed, and who is he the father of, or Obed? The father of Jesse, and it's starting to sound familiar. Remember the root of Jesse? Out of the stump of Jesse will come this branch. That branch is Jesus Christ. Well, Jesse is the father of David, who is the greatest king of Israel that Israel has ever known. And this is good news. Now, all right, finally, now here's a name that we're all familiar with, David. David's on the scene. From here, the lineage can start fresh without any sin, without any Gentiles, without any enemies. <laughs> so then look at verse 6. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So Bathsheba isn't even mentioned by name. Matthew just says the wife of Uriah. So if you go back and you read 2 Samuel chapter 11, you would already know that this is a deep stain on Israel's history. That the greatest king of all of Israel has on record that he slept with Bathsheba who was already married to Uriah the Hittite. And here we have this in the midst of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So Look at how Bathsheba is mentioned here as just the wife of Uriah, not even mentioning her name, probably just to give emphasis to the fact that not only is Solomon the greatest king of Israel, but he was born out of wedlock, out of adultery, and she was married to a Gentile Hittite. Not a very good way to start from David's lineage. If you do a deep study of this list, and, and many people have, you will soon realize that Matthew chooses to omit several names. So if you're a studier, or maybe you're a skeptic, because skeptics do this, and a studier will eventually find that there are some missing names in this genealogy, and Matthew does that on purpose. He's not here to give a, uh, a, a complete list of the genealogy, but he is in, including the right names that he wants to in order to preach the gospel that he's preaching and make Christ known as the king and the Messiah and the anointed one that he is. There's not names that shouldn't be here, but there are names that are missing. And again, when you study this, even with those inconsistencies, that was not even uncommon among ancient Israel genealogies. They would oftentimes omit certain names and include others that would help make their point, whatever they were trying to say. But if you do the study of that, you will see that there are names that he chooses to admit. Or, excuse me, omit. We don't know exactly why Matthew did that. There's not a, we don't have 100% accuracy of why he did that. But clearly, he had a purpose in naming the names that he did. And I'm so glad that he named these names. We even see some intention in how he arranges all of this list. 
so that it's easy to memorize. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. You maybe have noticed it. You're like, how did that happen to be so perfect with numbers? Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. How is that possibly 14, 14, and 14? So he arranges this in a way that the people who were reading this would easily memorize these names, 14 and 7, obviously an important number to Israel. And so this is even seeing the intent of Matthew to say, let's, let's give these readers something easy to grasp, something to hold on to, something that they can see, 14, 14, and 14. So this is a purposeful, and it's orderly for the sake of the reader. And none of it presents a problem to the history or to the accuracy of the genealogy, although some people will want to argue that. Well, there's names missing, so it can't be accurate. Nobody, no serious scholar has ever concluded that this is inaccurate because of the omission of names. Okay? So that we can just, we can take this as 100% accurate. Oftentimes also to say beget or the father of, you don't have to be the immediate father. In, in ancient genealogies, you could say beget and it could be somebody five generations down in your line. Right? And that was common. Which is why it can say with certainty that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He just skipped a whole bunch of people. He said Jesus is the son of of Abraham and the son of David. He's from his lineage. And that's the whole point of what he's trying to make. Which really makes the overarching point and sets the tone for all that Matthew is going to say in this account of the life of Jesus. If Jesus is the direct descendant of Abraham, then he fits the bill to be the fulfillment of Abraham's promise, which is that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Jesus fits that bill to be the one through whom the entire world, including you and I, will be blessed in God, will be blessed through Jesus Christ. And Jesus, he fits that, and nobody else does. And if Jesus is a direct descendant of David, which this does prove, then he is of royal lineage and the rightful king to the throne, which David was promised would never cease to occupy a king. All right, so move on a little bit. You'll notice that as the list of names comes to a close, you see this in verse 15 and 16. It says, And Eliad, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Methan, and Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. He, or who, is called Christ. All right, so the genealogy shows us this particular one. One shows us not the bloodline of Jesus back to Abraham, but the legal royal line through Joseph. We talked about that a little bit on Christmas already. Jesus receives no blood or human nature through Joseph, but had to have only received that through Mary, the one who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Joseph was an adopted father. But still, that shows us the emphasis and beauty that God puts upon adoption and the legality of it. Right? Isn't that beautiful? I just want to repeat that again. That that's the line that is being showed us. And many people believe that if you want to look at Mary's lineage, you look at Luke. And there, again, study that. Feel free. There's some, it's, it's muddy waters. And I didn't want to bring up a whole lot of it today. But if you feel like studying it, that's fine. A common understanding is that Luke is the one that includes Mary's lineage and proves how she also traces back to David and then all the way back to Adam. Luke actually includes his lineage all the way back to Adam. And that would be in Luke chapter 3. 
What follows from this point, guys, is, is miracle after miracle that proves the divinity of Jesus Christ, that he is indeed God. Matthew begins here for a reason, but perhaps what is most relevant to us this morning is those four women that he mentioned. Later in Matthew 9, as I referenced earlier, this was his sort of call to come to follow Christ. And Matthew gets up and he calls. After he calls and he gets up and he follows him immediately. Just after Jesus calls him to leave everything, we see Jesus sitting in Matthew's house with sinners and tax collectors. Are you familiar with this story? He's sitting there. So this is right after he calls Matthew. Matthew gets up and the very next scene in, in Matthew 9, it tells us, There's Matthew in his house, and Jesus is there eating a meal with this tax collector, just a brand new follower of Christ, and he's there amongst sinners and tax collectors. The Pharisees walk by, and they see what's happening, and they are appalled. They are appalled to see a Jewish teacher associating with sinners and people like Matthew. And they say, why does your teacher eat with people like that? That's a little bit paraphrased. Why does your teacher eat with people like that? And you can just picture the finger pointing. And this prideful, high and mighty religious, we're better, you're down here. How could your teacher do this? And this is his reply. Look at Matthew 9, verse 12 and 13. Matthew 9, 12 and 13. says, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This was his response to the Pharisees' prideful religious words that accused Jesus of sitting with sinners and tax collectors and accused the disciples of being with the wrong person. How could your teacher do such a vile, lowly thing? But isn't it right then for Matthew, who was called out of this place of outcast and destitute, welcomed into the family of Jesus, isn't it right for him to begin with a genealogy like this and include four women's names who are Gentiles and who would have been the outcasts of their society? Doesn't that make sense? Matthew was one of these people. Now, he was a Jew, but he was associating with, in a wrong way, with the Roman people. And he was guilty. The things that he probably did with that money, we don't even know. But he would have been rich off of the poor Israelites that he was collecting taxes from. Because you know in those days, they could put whatever uh, percentage on top of the actual tax and they could keep all the profits for themselves. They could basically write their own paychecks. And every Jew knew that. But Rome was behind him. They couldn't stop him. He could charge anybody, anybody they want for taxes. So you get the picture of how this would have been Matthew. And then he comes to follow Jesus. And then Jesus says, hey, let's go. Let's have dinner at your house. And I want you to invite all of your friends. Invite the tax collectors. Invite the sinners the ones that nobody would have over for dinner. I think what's important for us to understand about this, and we're not just to think about a room full of vile people on the exterior, right? What does it mean to associate with sinners? (laughs) Well, that's all of us. 
We're all sinners. All of us, in, in compared to God's holiness, we are all vile. I know that's hard to hear in our human perspective, but it is the truth. Compared to holiness, what else, how else do you describe yourself? Compared to a holy God, you stand next to a holy God, and who are you? Unholy. Dirty. And then here comes Jesus, the perfect representation of God the Father. You want to see, Jesus? You want to see the Father? Jesus said, look at me. He is the express image of God. And he associated with sinners. God, who was in absolute control of the lineage of Christ, chose to include sin and scandal and adultery in the story of Christ's lineage. That was all God's doing. He chose for Tamar to be there and Rahab to be there and Ruth and Bathsheba. He's like, well, how does he do that? Isn't that wasn't that sin? Wasn't that wrong? God is sovereign over sin. And I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Because all of us, what would we have to bring, really? We're like, well, I, I wish God would just use better specimens than that. Who would he use? Who would he use? But we get to see the, the real Jesus here in Matthew. He's presenting to us that the Messiah came, the anointed one, Christ, came, and he dwelt among sinners. And he's accessible to us. He associates with sinners. He does it at his genealogy. Isn't that amazing? You and I, we can't choose our genealogy. God can. And he chose sovereignly to put the genealogy of his son, his perfect son, surrounded in this mess. He does it at his genealogy. We're going to see later he does it at his birth. He's surrounded by sinners, is he not? Outcasts, there are the shepherds, there's the magi. He's in the, he's in the stable, he's in the manger. He's surrounded with unholy things, and there's Jesus in the midst of it. How about his baptism? Surrounded by sin. Wait a minute. John's like, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, you baptize me. He chose for a sinner to baptize him. A holy, perfect God was baptized by a sinner. Isn't that amazing? He loves, he loves people. I just want us to hear that this morning. Whatever, whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever filth, whatever hardship, whatever, whatever you've been through or whatever you've done against God or against people, if you come to Christ humbly and admitting that you are that sinner, he wants to be with you. And he wants you to be with him. He loves you. He proved it in a specific kind of love, not like a love that overlooks sin, but a love that deals with sin. And he died on the cross. And he suffered for the sake of sinners. But he associated with those sinners in his life. He even associates with sinners at his cross with a thief on each side. All through his life. Doesn't he not show that picture? And here's Matthew beginning right here. Even in his genealogy, Charles Spurgeon says this, Jesus is heir of a line in which flows the blood of the harlot Rahab and the rustic Ruth. He is akin to the fallen and to the lowly. And he will show his love even to the poorest and most obscure. What I want each of you to do this morning as we sort of think about this account from Matthew who himself is a sinner and a tax collector, a man who is despised by Israel, 
that his portrayal of Jesus is one that you and I can relate to right now. We can, each of us, say, I can approach that, Jesus. Now, you may not be able to approach a holy God. This is important to understand. We cannot approach God's throne room without something happening. We can't be in the presence of God at the end of our life unless something happens. Jesus is so crucial. Christ is so crucial. He comes and represents God, but he also represents man to God. It goes both ways. He came to be the perfect sacrifice, but then also to mediate between God and man, to be the perfect man on behalf of the human race. So we can approach God because of the man, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. I want to know this Jesus this morning. I pray that you know this Jesus this morning who though he is high and lifted up in the heavens, and he is, he is right now, he is the, in the holiest of holies of all. He chose to associate with people like us. So seeing this woman, these women in Christ's lineage, it also shows us that God has a certain compassion for those that society might push aside as less important. That God has a specific compassion for those that society pushes aside. That should help us to see how we view people. If God does this, then how ought we to live? If this is God's heart, if this is Christ's heart, then how does that affect us? And you each need to wrestle with that. Wrestle with the people in your life. Wrestle around the idea of the people in your life that you should be associating with in the way that Christ did in order to bring them the kingdom, the news of the kingdom, and to bring them the news of eternal life in Christ. Even though Jews treated women much better than most other cultures, which is true, so if you want to, you know, a lot of people will look at all of this and say, well, you know, the Bible is so, you know, sexist and it's misogynist, and it's just not. The, the Jews' treatment of women was far, I mean, worlds better and different than, than the pagan cultures that lived around them. But even still, Jews were still sinners, and they would pray prayers like this. Jewish men would often pray each morning and say, thank God that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Now, that's, that's bad, right? But look, look who Christ has in his genealogy. So don't look at man. Don't look at the filth and the sin and the way that man treats humanity as your standard. Look at Christ. Look at what he did. Look what he ultimately chose to surround himself with. And yet, so here are four women, all with stains on their life. And Jesus says, now hear this. Jesus says, I want them. Amen. Maybe you struggle with this particularly. The idea of being wanted by God. The idea of being in his presence. The idea of being important. Maybe because of the world, because of culture, Right? And there's a lot about this identity and who you are. And the world has this really backwards. We're to know who we are based on who our creator is. We begin there. Who God made us to be in his image. Special because we are God's creation. But because of the world and because of sin, we do struggle with this idea of being accepted, being important to the right people. There's all kinds of scars in our lives from relationships and things that need to be healed. But if we could all just for a moment focus on 
what God did to bring us into his loving presence and the kind of people he wants to associate with, all of that fear and all of the misunderstanding should just slide to the wayside. And we can say, well, if you want to be with people like Rahab the harlot and Ruth the Moabitess and the Canaanite woman, if you want to be with them, and if if you would call Matthew the tax collector, the despised Jew who worked for the enemy, (laughs) if you would call him and just say, follow me, then there's not a person in this room that he would look at you and say, yeah, everybody but you. Isn't that amazing? He would say, you too. Just follow me. And that is the call. It's not, yeah, you too, and just stay right there where you are, and, and, and you're, you, you, you just do you. <laughs> That's, Jesus doesn't say you do you, okay? He says, no, follow me and do what I say. I will make you fishers of men. I will change your life. Take up your cross and follow me. So maybe you struggle with that idea. The only way to cure this unbelief is to come to God through Jesus Christ. For it is only in Jesus that we see God's love and grace extended to sinners. That's what Matthew is showing us. His love and his grace extended to sinners. To sinners, And we see God's justice against sin also in Jesus Christ. So we see a perfectly extended love to sinful, vile people. And we see God's righteous, just dealing with sin by punishing Jesus on the cross on our behalf. We are so free to come to him today, right now. Any one of us, all of us, even as Christians, you guys understand what I'm saying? The gospel is for for all of us in this very moment. Whatever you've done, you look past it, you know, you look at your year past and you might have things you're extremely disappointed with, people that you upset, things that you've done, sins you keep committing and you won't stop. All of that. Believer, non-believer, go to Christ. He is making it very clear, is he not? That he wants to fellowship with us, and he has made the way through Jesus Christ. When we see, a G- when we see Jesus associating with the likes of Tamar the harlot and Ruth, Rahab and Canaanite, and Bathsheba, what can we all conclude? And I just want to end with this phrase, and then we're going to pray. I, too, may come to him. So just sort of just meditate on that for a moment. And as we go into communion, think about that. I too may come to him. If they can come, so can I. But it's through Jesus, remember? Well, this is, we're not universalists. There is a standard, and the standard is holiness, and the only one who fulfilled that holy, perfect standard is Jesus. So to say, I too can come, yes, you can, through Jesus Christ. And if he's calling you today, if he's prompting you, if he's convicting you, if he's on your heart, and you say, yes, that's me, I am that sinner, I need Jesus, and come to him. Put your faith in Christ, all of us. But what a phrase, right? I too. And you have the list. Like, what have I done? Oh, man, I do not deserve to go to him. I don't deserve to be in the, the care of a shepherd like Jesus, the creator and a perfect savior. I don't deserve that. So take that whole list, all of it, everything that you think you know and everything that you've done, all that you know about yourself, and then you can say that phrase, even then, I too, I can still come to him, and he wants to change you. Some of you, some of you in this room need to be saved. 
brought brand new to eternal life. And you do that by surrendering, repenting, turn from sin. Bear with me, believers. Turn from sin. You guys know what that means, right? It means leave your sin behind. You're going one way, you go, leave your sin there, you go the other way. You turn and you turn to Christ who forgives sin and has completely paid the price for all that you've ever done wrong. Amen, isn't that amazing? That is the good news. That is the gospel. And when we do that, what does he do? He gives us new life. He calls us to be his disciple and his follower, and that's why we need the local church. That's why we need each other, because we're all following Jesus together. You ever tried doing something so monumentous alone? You ever tried that? We all have, and it's, it's impossible. So we need each other. If you're on the fringes, let me just speak for a moment to anybody who is part of this church, and maybe you've been around for a while, but you're still on the fringes. It's dangerous out there. No sheep survives on the, on the fringes. And it's not for lack of Jesus calling you. It's your unwillingness to come into the middle of the fold. So if you're going to be a part of New City Church this year, that's the challenge that I want you all to take. Come into the middle of the fold. Right? Fellowship. Serve. Pray together. Be with brothers and sisters. Don't be the one that's on the outside. And we'll pull all the effort we can into calling you in. But if you've ever heard that call and you're hearing it right now, come in. Okay? Whoever, whoever you are that needs to do that. Let me pray, guys. And I think somebody's going to lead communion. Um, Mark, all right. The pinch hitter for John. All right. Let's pray, guys. Or for Isaac. That's what it was, yeah. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your word. I pray that today, as, as we're thinking about what Matthew recorded here, the very beginning of the account of Christ, Lord, that we would even begin now to lay aside what we thought was right, what we thought was expected of us, what we thought your thoughts were towards us. The world is so deceptive, and Satan is such an enemy, an accuser, a deceiver, a liar. Oh, God, let us believe every word that you say and hang on to every word. And, and as we hear your word today, to by faith move forward and say, I believe you are who you are, who you said you are, and I am going to follow you. I want to be with you. I see the effort. I see what you put forth to prove your love for me, to prove that you would want to be with somebody even like me. I thank you for your perfect love, for your perfect justice. And I pray that every one of us today would turn and repent and go running to the cross of Christ. Father, work in our church. Thank you so much. Go draw people in, even now. Draw people in that are on the fringes, that are on the outside, that are hurting, that are disappointed with life and disappointed with people. It's impossible to be disappointed with you. It is only our flesh that makes us blind. Draw us into fellowship, Lord. Restore us. Thank you that we too may come. Just like these women, Gentiles, 
outcast, just like Matthew. Lord, maybe there's something like that, like we've been working with the enemy. We're doing things that are unpleasing to you, and you're saying today, drop it all, follow me. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the way. Lord, whoever needs to do that, would you work in their hearts and draw them even now that they would put their faith and trust in you? So we thank you, Lord. Be glorified in our, in our midst. We worship you now. We remember you. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.